Numbers chapter 13. So here we go. Numbers chapter 13. The Lord said, So at the Lord's command, Moses sent them out from the desert of Paran. All of them were leaders of the Israelites. These are their names. From the tribe of Reuben, Shammua, son of Zakur. From the, tri- from the tribe of Simeon, Shaphat, son of Horai. From the tribe of Judah, Caleb, son of Jephunai. From the tribe of Issachar, Igel, son of Joseph. From the tribe of Ephraim, Hoshea, son of Nun. From the tribe of Benjamin, Poltai, son of Raphu. From the tribe of Zebulun, Gadiel, son of Sodai. From the tribe of Manasseh, a tribe of Joseph, Gadai, son of Susi. From the tribe of Dan, Amiel, son of Gemali. From the tribe of Asher, Zether, son of Michael. From the tribe of Naphtali, Nabai, son of Vofsi. From the tribe of Gad, Guel, son of Machai. Glad, glad that's done with. Uh, no. These are the names of the men Moses sent to explore the land. Moses gave Hoshea, son of Nun, the name Joshua. When Moses sent them to explore Canaan, he said, Go up through the Negev and on into the hill country. See what the land is like and whether, whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good or bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled or fortified? How is the soil? Is it fertile or poor? Are there trees on it or not? Do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land. It was the season for the first ripe grapes. So they went up and explored the land from the desert of Zin as far as Rehob towards Lebo Hamath. They went up through the Negev and came to Hebron where Ahiman, Sheshai, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, lived. Hebron had been built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. When they reached the valley of Eshkol, they cut off a branch bearing a single cluster of grapes. Two of them carried it on a pole between them, along with some pomegranates and figs. That place was called the Valley of Eshkol because of the cluster of grapes the Israelites cut off there. At the end of 40 days, they returned from exploring the land. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruits of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev, the Hittites, Jezubites, and Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We can't attack those people, they are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. 
They said, the land we explore devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak came from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. Morning. Great to be here with you this morning. And uh, uh, the last time I preached from this pulpit uh, was at Ian and Debbie's wedding. So that's ten years ago. And uh, had two uh, lovely little girls since then. But it's good to be here. Last time I was in Uvesterich, went in this morning for prayer, it was to sign the register. Um, so there you go. But it's uh, good to be in the house of God, isn't it? Good to be in the presence of God. Um, normally they have a clock on the back wall. Oh, it's on the side wall. Right, okay. Well, I never looked to the right, so don't worry. But, uh, okay. Uh, what time do you finish? That's dangerous. Okay. Uh, a friend of mine, uh, he, he was a visiting preacher, and um, uh, he, he went to a, a church one morning, uh, and the resident pastor, he said to him, uh, how long do, can I have, brother? He said, uh, as long as you like, brother. He said, but we go home at 12. <laughs> so you have your cup of tea, don't you, at 12? But uh, I'll be finished long before that. Okay, would you turn into that passage? It's in Numbers 13. Numbers chapter 13. And uh, I, I thought um, Ian read those names brilliantly. In fact, I gave him the reading so I wouldn't have to do it. And uh, But you did okay there, my word. The secret is, of course, if you get a reading like that, is to say it quickly uh, and confidently. And people will assume you know what you're talking about. But there we go. But it's a couple of verses um, in there, uh, in that list. What it is, you've got the 12 spies. They've come into the land of Canaan. They, uh, or rather, uh, to Kurdish Barnia. And they've gone through the wilderness of Paran. They've journeyed from Horeb. And what's happening here now is that they send out the ten spies to spy out the land. The twelve spies, sorry. And you know, of course, what happened. Ten of them came back with that evil report. Two of them came back with that good report. And when you look at that list of the spies, um, a prince from each one of the uh, twelve tribes of Israel. Verse 6, from the tribe of Judah, Judah, Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, that's who we're interested in, and also verse 8, and from the tribe of Ephraim, Hosea, the son of Nun, or of course Joshua. So we're talking about Joshua, and we're talking about Caleb. The two came back with a good report. The only two that came back, the land was prosperous, the land was flowing with milk and honey, uh, a good land, uh, fruitful, they come back with the grapes of Eskol after 40 days, And yet they come back with that evil report, refusing to go into the land, refusing to obey Moses and uh, indeed Yahweh, their God. They could only see the giants. Uh, If you look at verse 28, Nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong. 
The cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anat there. Uh, they were descendants of the uh, Nephilim, the giants. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south. The Hittites, the Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the mountains. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan, uh, the bank of the Jordan. And it goes on like that. And there's only Caleb and Joshua who were saying we were well able to overcome. It says in verse 30, Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses, said, Let us go up at once, take possession, for we are well able to overcome it. But the others, they give this negative report. They say it's a land that devours its inhabitants. The men there are of great stature. And then it says in verse 33, uh, And we are like grasshoppers in our own sight. And if you go into chapter 14, what happens there is that the people turn against Moses. In fact, they're about to stone him. They're complaining. They're always complaining. They're always bellyaching all the way through uh, that wilderness journeying. And they're about to elect a new leader. And Joshua and Caleb, they intervene on the uh, part of uh, Moses. Look, it's an exceedingly good land. It says in verse 8 of Numbers 14, If the Lord delights in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. And then it says in verse 9, Only do not rebel against the Lord. Their disobedience was seen as rebellion here. Nor fear the people of the land, for they are our bread. Their protection has departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Their protection has gone from them. Such is the presence of Yahweh in our midst. And they're about to stone Moses. And were it not for the intervention of Yahweh, of God, that's exactly what would have happened. But now, Moses starts to intercede for the people. And says to God, says to Yahweh, look, don't destroy the people. Think about the Egyptians, what they will think if you leave, uh, if you now don't take your people into the promised land. Think of all the surrounding nations. Think of your great name. That's the important thing. Think of your honour. Think of all that that means. And you've got that beautiful intercession of Moses there. And it starts off verse 18. The Lord is long-suffering, he says, in verse 17. And now I pray, let the power of my Lord be great, just as you were spoken, saying, the Lord is long-suffering and abundant in mercy. That's God's hesed. I believe you were studying that, weren't you? Uh, was it last week or whenever? Uh, your, 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 your retreat. Uh, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he by no means clears the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers, on the children of the third and the fourth generation. Pardon the iniquity of this people, I pray, according to your greatness of your mercy. And it goes on like that. Uh, But what I want you to see is this. Uh, These verses, verses 22 to 24, that I'm going to read to you now, and particularly verse 24, and a phrase within that particular verse, it says this, Because of these men who have seen my glory and the signs or the miracles which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and have put me to the test 
now these ten times and have not heeded my voice, they certainly shall not see the land of which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who reject me see it. And you probably know that all those 20 years old and above, they actually perished in the wilderness. They didn't actually go into Canaan itself. Uh, They all fell in the wilderness because of their disobedience at that particular time. Because of the fear. The ten spies, they somehow, they... They, they instilled fear in, in, in the people, and, and all the people were complaining, were told in another place, in, the, in their tents, would that we uh, died in Egypt, would we, we, we left there, we, we remember the garlic, we remember the cucumbers, we remember better day. Here you are, you've brought us out here to perish in the wilderness. And God says, because you've disobeyed me, he said, you will not enter Canaan, those 20 years old and above. But then he says this, you disobeyed me ten times because all these men who have seen my glory and the signs which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and have put me to the test now these ten times, ten times they put him to the test and have not heeded my voice. Verse 23, they certainly shall not see the land of which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who reject me see it. It says this, but my servant Caleb. And this is what I want to draw your attention to this morning. Because he has a different spirit in him and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land where he went and his descendants shall inherit it. This keeps, I'm just dropping a little bit. Does that, is that better? Okay, every time it booms, you boom out your seat, and I don't want you to sort of do that. Okay, that's okay. Because he has a different spirit. And I began to ask myself, you see, it says five times, I think it is, six, if you find an occasion where it says it of Joshua as well. It says that Caleb has followed me fully. And I want to know, what was it about Caleb that made him so very, very different from everybody else? What was it that caused him to endure? It's an interesting thing. You you find it in uh, chapter 1 of Deuteronomy. It talks about the fact that he had a a different spirit. But when you go into the book of Joshua, uh, that's very interesting because in Joshua chapter 14, what you actually get there is that Joshua is actually allotting the land to the various tribes. And when the tribe of Judah come, Caleb comes along um, with them, and he wants to claim his inheritance uh, from Moses that was promised unto him. And three times it says, because he followed me fully. Let me read it to you. Then the children of Judah, of which Caleb uh, was of, of Judah, came to Joshua in Gilgal, and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him, You know the word which the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, concerning you and me in Kadesh Barnea. I was forty years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land. And I brought back word to him as it was in my heart. Nevertheless, my brethren who went up with me made the heart of the people melt, but I wholly followed the Lord. You get it again. Next verse. So Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land where your foot has trodden shall be your inheritance and your children's forever. Why? Because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. 
And now, behold, you have kept me alive, as he said, these 45 years. So now, Caleb is 85 years of age, and he's the oldest person there in Canaan amongst the Jews, because all the others, 20 years old and above, had perished in the wilderness, and he was older than Joshua. So he's the oldest guy there, present at that particular time, looking even older than me. He says, these 45 years, ever since the Lord spoke these words to Moses, while Israel wandered in the wilderness, and now here I am this day, 85 years old, as yet I am as strong this day as on the day that Moses sent me, just as my strength was then, so now is my strength for war, both for going out and for coming in. Imagine, he's 85 years old and he's a warrior, very much a warrior. Now therefore give me this mountain. It's the same mountain that he'd spied out in Hebron those 45 years earlier. He says, now therefore give me this mountain of which the Lord spoke in that day. For you heard in that day how the Anakim were there, the giants, that the cities were great and fortified. It may be, it's not even presumptuous, it may be that the Lord will be with me and I shall be able to drive them out. As the Lord said, and Joshua blessed him and gave Hebron to Caleb the son of Jephunneh as an inheritance. Hebron therefore, you see you get it again, Hebron therefore became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite to this day, because he wholly followed the Lord God of Israel. And I asked the question uh, some months ago, why is it that certain people seem to have this tenacity, certain people seem to be able to endure? Um, I, I went to, to um, a funeral not long ago, well, the church where I was uh, saved, where I was converted. And I was surprised to see how many who were in the youth group at that time were still there going on. But you know, it's also true to say, and having been a pastor for uh, well over 40 years, I've seen many, many people come and go. And you've probably seen that, and you've probably witnessed that. Sometimes people come in, they get converted, they're full of fire, they're full of the Holy Spirit. Today's Pentecostal Sunday, by the way, as uh, Susanna reminded us. Uh, and they, they come in with such fire and such enthusiasm, and they almost make you feel as if you're not converted. Do you, know, do you know the sort of feeling? And then all of a sudden, one day they're missing, and they're back in the world, and they're no longer following the Lord, following Jesus. And I asked myself, why is it, what was it about Caleb? Why is he so different? Is it simply a human trait? Is it some, simply that some people have more staying power, more sticking power, more tenacity uh, than other people? That may be true, but I don't think that really answers it. The answer is that this man had a different spirit. And I want to know what that different spirit is this morning. You know, there will be times when all of us will be called upon to stand up for our faith. It won't always be easy, where we have to set our si- uh, ourselves aside and we have to, you know, really nail our colours to the mast. And it's becoming increasingly more and more difficult in the days in which we're living. Even in the Church of God itself, it's not always all that easy. 
even as a, a pastor, I found myself having to sometimes confront things that I knew were just not true, that just were doctrinally incorrect. And you find yourself out on a limb. The student who goes to university can find himself, herself out on a limb. Maybe their standards are, are, are quite different as they ought to be. And you can go on in the place of business, wherever it might be, you can find this sort of thing happening. We all have it to face at some time or another. And you can find yourself in isolation. I think of the Apostle Paul, he said, At my first defence, he said, no one stood with, with me. He said, but all forsook me. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that the message might be preached fully through me and that all the Gentiles might hear. And he said, also, I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. This man, Caleb, what was the reason for his faith? And I want to try and show you that. What do I mean by a different spirit? I want to try and show you what I think it means from the book of Ezekiel. And I'm reading from Ezekiel 36. And the verses that you're probably familiar with, that you will have heard at some time or another, Israel, at this particular point, they are exiled in Babylon. And the voice of Yahweh comes to them in verse 16. And it says this, it says, Moreover the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, when the house of Israel dwelt in their own land, they defiled it by their own ways. And it goes on like that, by their uncleanness, uncleanliness. And it goes on to say, so I scattered them amongst the nations. It says, when they came uh, to the nations, uh, wherever they went, they profaned my holy name. You see, the name of God, God is jealous for his name, for his holy name. And he says in verse 21, But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations, wherever they went. Therefore say to the house of Israel, I'll read it to you before I try and expound it. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. And I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst, and in the nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. Now look at this, because this is conversion. And one of the things that you notice sometimes is that with conversion, sometimes we, that there are various steps. Sometimes when it comes to conversion, we, we, we somehow don't understand the terms of the gospel. There are terms within the gospel. And sometimes there's a tendency for us to stop at a, a particular points on the, on the way instead of proceeding, instead of going on. Now look here how you get a, a description in the Old Testament, in the book of Ezekiel. Yes, it's concerning the nation of Israel. But it's the gospel in embryo because the gospel is throughout the Bible, wherever you care to look for it. Look at what it says here. I will take you from among the nations... This morning, as the people of God, we have been brought out of Egypt. We have been brought out of the house of bondage. That's the truth of the matter. 
We have been brought out of our sin and our degradation. And we have been made sons and daughters of the living God. God has set his love upon us. That's the wonderful thing. I will take you from among the nations. I will gather you out of all countries and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will, and here's Pentecostal Sunday, I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and you will do them. Notice how it starts off with God. Our salvation always starts off with God. Our faith, our Christian experience, it does not start off with me. You know, there's what I call a me gospel going about today. You get it on the internet. And it's so inward looking. It concentrates on the individual. The Bible never does that. It's a funny thing, I often engage in apologetics, but the Bible doesn't. The Bible takes God for granted. In the beginning, God. That's how Genesis starts off. It's there. It's absolutely emphatic. And it runs like that, right the way through. And here's the wonderful thing. God said, listen, I am not doing it for your sake. He said, I am doing it for my sake. I am doing it for my holy name's sake. I am jealous for my own righteousness and my own holiness. I had concern for my holy name that you have profaned. Thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake. And I will sanctify my great name. I will separate it, you know... (laughs) Make it clear amongst the people as to whom I am. I will take you from among the nations. And then I will sprinkle clean water. The gospel starts with God. It starts with God in the New Testament. Think of that wonderful chapter in Romans 8. You know it. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You know it, don't you? For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. What the law could not do in the... It was weak through the flesh. You see, the law could never ever save us. It was weak through the flesh. Nothing wrong with the law. It was a perfect law. The best law that could ever be framed. Reminds me, first church I pastored, I I, I borrowed a spade off one of the deacons to to dig over my God. Have you noticed whenever you borrow something, it always breaks? Have you been there? And you you hand it back, broken. And I was digging with a spade and the handle broke. And I thought, oh dear, what am I going to do? I have to buy him a new one. You see... There was nothing wrong with the spade. It was The weakness was in the handle. There's nothing wrong with the law. The problem with the law is it's weak through the flesh. That's the difficulty. We have the problem, not the law itself. But here's the wonderful thing. If you read on in that chapter, it goes on to talk about, you know, that verse 28, Romans 8, 28. All things work together for good to those who love God. You know the one. To those who are the co- it's the verse that people always quote to you, you know, when things are going wrong. 
when your world is falling apart and you really are, you know, in desperation and somebody comes along and says, never mind, brother, never mind, sister. All things work together for good. And you feel like, well, you wouldn't do it because you're gracious, but I feel like poking them in the eye. But the next verse goes on. You see, we are the called of God. That's the wonderful thing this morning. And it goes on to say that who he called, he predestined. It goes on to talk about the fact that, well, let me read it very quickly to you to make sure that we get it after Romans. It's in the New Testament, isn't it? Let me see if I can find it. Okay. Romans, a, a wonderful chapter in the Word of God. Now, you see, the point I'm making is that our salvation starts with God. I didn't go seeking for him. He came seeking for me. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. And this is what conversion is. This is what Christianity is all about. And so it says something like this. With a mighty sweep. Look how it goes right the way from foreknowledge, predestination, our election, our justification, our glorification. For whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, them he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also Glorified. What then shall we say to these things? Can anybody finish the quote without reading it off from your phone? I'm sure that was right anyway. If God before us, who can be against us? You see, this is the wonderful thing about our redemption. But then he goes on to say this. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you. And I thank God for the cleansing power of God. I thank God for the blood of Jesus. The one who has reconciled us to the Father. The one who is our mediator. The Bible is clear about it. There is only one mediator between God and man, and that's the man Christ Jesus. There is one name, said Peter, in his second sermon in the Acts of the Apostles given under heaven, whereby we must be saved. The name of Jesus, the way, the one who is the way, and the one who is the truth, and the one who is the life. And Hebrews 1, 3, the first three verses of Hebrews 1, they're a marvellous, well, summary in a way of the whole of the epistle to the Hebrews. But verse 3 says, when he had purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty upon high. And that's where he is now, interceding for you and for me. We are the people of God. What a wonderful thing. You see, the gospel starts, doesn't it, with the cleansing power of Jesus. You've got to go to the cross. It starts with the blood of the Lamb. It starts with repentance. The Apostle Paul preached repentance toward God and faith towards our Lord and Saviour. Jesus Christ. But here's the interesting thing. It doesn't stop there. And this is what I mean by we sometimes tend to stop at various stages on the way. Instead of realising the full... It's a full-orb gospel. You know, when you think about it. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Whosoever believes in him should not perish, 
would have everlasting life. That's the gospel in a nutshell. You could all quote that for me. You all know that. I remember uh, when I taught at a school in in uh, in Chorley, and uh, somebody said to me uh, one day, "What's John three sixteen? They'd been to a football match and somebody had been waving a banner and it said John 3.16. So I quoted this as you could have quoted it for God so loved the world. And Anyway, a few weeks later, he was in the staff room and he said to, to, to some of the staff, he said, if you want to know anything about the Bible, he said, just ask Bob Clark, he'll tell you. I thought, I'm only glad he didn't ask me Ezekiel 19 verse 2. I would have been stumped. But it's... But you see, the gospel is too big to get in a nutshell. We used to call it the gospel in a nutshell. It's a, a pretty comprehensive text. But it doesn't contain the whole of the gospel. You need the whole of the Bible. If you're talking about the whole of the gospel. And this is a wonderful thing. The Lord Jesus Christ, he cleanses us with his blood. But I tell you, if that and repentance were sufficient, then... Israel would not have been in Babylon at this particular time. The ten spies wouldn't have behaved in the way that they did. You see, there's more to the gospel than that. You've got to move on from there. The cults, they know about repentance. What does it say? I will give you a new heart. And I will put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh... And I will give you a heart of flesh. You know, what what wonderful words they are. It takes that stony heart. Jeremiah said so many years ago. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? You can read so much. In Hebrews it says of the Jews they had an evil heart of unbelief. It says, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Even going back to Genesis 6 before the flood, and we talked about the Nephilim here. God saw that every intent of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. It says in Romans 1, They became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. You see, there's only one solution. Man needs a new heart. He needs a new disposition, a a, a new nature. He he takes that heart of flesh, uh, uh, stone, sorry, and he replaces it with a heart of flesh. But it doesn't even stop there because he goes on to say, yes, I will give you a new heart. But I will put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh. Give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, within you. And cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will keep my judgments. And you will do them. And you see, it seems to me that here you've got the gospel in embryo. It's there. The seminal beginnings of it are there. I was reading one commentary and I can't even remember now which one it was. But it said, the full construction born of the Spirit is not found in the Old Testament, he said. But the ingredients are there. And they are there. They're very much there. There's only one Bible, Old and New Testament. There's only one Gospel. And the thread runs right the way through the Scripture. 
it's the counterpart, I suppose, of what Jeremiah spoke about when he talked about a new covenant. You see, you're face to face with a central, controlling, biblical doctrine. Sometimes it goes by the name rebirth, sometimes regeneration, sometimes new creation. That which is born of spirit is spirit. And looking at the clock, you know, I used to wonder, what does that mean? That which is born of spirit is spiritual, is spirit. And and I read a a commentary by one of the Puritans, and he, he put it this way, that which is born of the spirit is spiritualized. And when you became a Christian, you were given a capacity for God. You were given a new nature. You were given a new disposition. Something happened. You become indwelt by the Spirit of God and your body became a temple of the Holy Spirit. And that's why you began to relate to the things of God. You know what it's like? You can read a newspaper and there's no problem. You read a chapter of your Bible and nothing goes in. Or is that just me? You're not like that. You read your Bible and everything goes in, does it? You never have to start at the beginning again and think, oh, what have I read? You know? But the Spirit brings life and the Spirit makes it real and reveals Christ through his word. And that's the wonderful thing, to be born of the Spirit of God. I tell you, when we became Christians, God put a new principle into our lives. He gave us a capacity for God and we were given a new nature. What I'm saying to you this morning is this, that the gospel is a miracle. Nothing short of a miracle. Salvation is nothing short of a miracle this morning. And Caleb had a different spirit. A spirit that so consumed him, it enabled him to endure right to the end. Never looking back. And I finish with this. Don't dare say Amen. Caleb, now in Joshua 14, is 85 years old. He's got just as much strength, he's got just as much enthusiasm. He says, give me... How old are you, sweetheart? I shouldn't really ask a lady a name. Yeah. Hallelujah. It was your age. Well, it it was older than you. And he went and kicked out the Amalekites. He said to Joshua, give me this land, as Moses promised, as Yahweh promised. For the last 45 years I have wholly followed the Lord, right through the wilderness, right up until now. Can you imagine those mothers in Israel? They said, the sons and daughters, see that geezer there, see that old guy there? See him? That's Caleb. All this time he has wholly Followed the Lord. The oldest person there. Caleb was no namby-pamby. They tell me that Christianity is for women and children. He was no namby-pamby. You know what namby-pamby is, don't you? It's one of those kind of rhyme words. Uh, when I was at Blackburn, a young man came to join me to the youth and uh, came as assistant pastor. He's running the place now. But uh, he, he was Italian, Simon. And prior to coming to us, he'd, he'd been the youth pastor in this very large Anglican church in the south of England. And they used to have um, uh, 
uh, meetings on a Monday morning of all the staff, because uh, they're quite a, lo- a large staff, and they were discussing uh, who to invite as a, a visiting speaker. And a name was suggested, uh, and um, somebody said, oh, we don't want him, he's wishy-washy. So Simon, being Italian, looked quite confused. He said, um, what does wishy-washy mean? You know, hairy fairy. So, so, so they, you know, they, and apparently, yeah, froth and bubble. So you can see the confusion mounting in his eyes. Pie in the sky. Don't see what's it, I don't know. Apparently it went on for quite some time. Listen, he was no namby-pamby. He was a warrior. Do you know it says of our God that he's a man of war? And he went out and claimed his inheritance. He said, even now, I'll claim that mountain. That mountain I spied out, I will claim it now. Where all that fruit... Do you know, even in the Valley of Eskol, even today, it's noted for the fruit of the vine and the quality of the grapes. He said, I will go, I will claim it. I will kick out the Anakim. I keep saying Anakim, that's your fault, making me watch Star Wars. The Anakim, that's it, isn't it? I'll kick them out. I'll claim my inheritance, if it be the Lord's will. And he went out and he did it. My prayer is that I will endure to the end. My prayer for all of God's people is that like Caleb, we will endure to the end, that we will have this different spirit within us that somehow has its origin in God himself and endures us, enables us to endure to the end. I pray for my my grandchildren, my granddaughter, the little ones. Hallelujah. What a great God we've got. Aren't you quiet? Bless you all. I wondered if there was anybody out there, but I've taken my glasses off and I can see there are. Haven't we got a great God this morning? Hallelujah. Thank you for inviting me. Bless you all.